The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hi, everyone. I am Sarah Edmondson, and I'm here with... Hi, I'm Anthony Ames, Sarah's husband, a.k.a. Nippy. And we're here to talk about things that are a little bit culty. Speaking of, we were in a cult and we woke up, thank goodness, and we have a lot to say. And a lot to ask. This podcast is going to be a deep dive into everything from the red flags to the narcissism, the manipulation, the resiliency, the recovery process, and everything in between. Also, we want to share some of the good we got out of it so you can get all the nuggets without having to join a cult. If you haven't already, because there are a lot of things out there that are just a little bit culty. Welcome to A Little Bit Culty, a podcast about the fads, beliefs, and trends that blur the line between healthy and a little bit culty. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And find us on Instagram if you have any suggestions for things you have found to be a little bit culty. Under the surface, the water fills my lungs. This ground I worship has swallowed up its young. And you give for a promise. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to A Little Bit Culty. I'm Sarah, and I'm here with my handsome husband. What up, kids? What's going on, babe? What's going on? I posted this meme. There's a meme that's going around that has kind of this aristocratic guy sitting in a chair with his two kids. Like from the 50s, like one of those yeah, old-fashioned Yeah, it's like 50s old, memes. kind of like an old, those were the days kind of thing. And and it has the kid asking the dad a question. And I told Sarah I wanted to do a little thing about it. And she went and had it made and it says, what did you do during the coronavirus, daddy? And it says, I put a sociopath narcissist in jail for 120 years. And the kid on the floor says, fucking legend. So I'm just laughing at all the comments that I got on that. I think that meme goes well also with your new shoes that you're wearing, your gold Nikes. I'm getting some play on those too. I got some gold. Uh, they're called Vandals. You would have first seen them in the Terminator when John Connor comes back from the future and he puts them on. I do a nice close up on them. But they were before Air Jordan or anything like that. I went major old school for those and I got them in gold. Can't argue with those. Nippy also got me gold Nike Air. What are they called? They're Air Force One. Air Force Sarah. One. They're Sorry. Lowe's. Oh my God. They're Can we re- just start this whole thing over? No, I'm no. Embarrassed. You know, <laughs> I get you gold shoes. This is the treatment I get. Oh my God. They're probably the best present you've ever gotten me. And the yeah. best part about it was that he told me that he thought that there was something, a light on in the closet. There was something glowing. And I was like, what? He's like, can you just go check? I think there's like a weird light on. And I went yeah. and looked and there were these beautiful glowing gold shoes. That's how you do it, kids. It is how you do it. That's you know, you and I, it, this relates to what people have been asking, like, how are you doing with your healing? And what's life like after the cult? And Nike.com. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. It's called retail therapy. Yep. But in all seriousness, I think that... That was serious. Yeah. <laughs> I know it was serious, but somebody wrote the question for the day was like, what's the thing that you enjoy the most about your freedom? And I think 
I didn't let myself do things that would have been deemed as like indulgent or satiative is what was the word that Nexium used, like buying things like that because they weren't needs. And that's something that you and I've really been unpacking, don't you think? Like, well, I've actually been buying shoes like that for quite a while. Well, it's because you weren't as obedient as yeah. I was in yeah. the in the cult. Defiant, they would say. Yeah. You know, we've talked about how our issues were used against us. And because Nippy wasn't as much of a sheep as I was, they said that he was defiant, that he had anger issues. and Which is true. I mean, I get pissed every now and then, but I wouldn't say they're anger issues. I mean, it's human to get pissed. That's how they control you, which is in our upcoming guest book. It's a great segue to that. Yes. Our guest today is going to be talking exactly about that. And we're very, really excited to have her. But that that's my other question for you, Nip. Like, what, what other freedoms do you enjoy since leaving? Well, now that we're in this lockdown COVID thing, I kind of feel constricted again. But, <laughs> you know, I just I just don't like having to to be on on a certain schedule and be in certain cities and traveling with a kid. I like actually having the consistency of the day to day and a routine. Yeah, we did a lot of traveling. Well, routine is where like, you know, you get your success, right? You have to have a routine to be successful. And our routines were always getting broken up. Any sort of momentum we had in other areas outside of the organization were always thwarted because we, we were we had to be somewhere for two, three weeks. And then, you know, it was just a shit show. I, did, I remember the when we first left and I cleared all of my recurring events in my calendar, all of the different like the proctor call, the green call, the commerce call, the executive board call, the coaching call, the goals up call. There was like Somewhere between thirty to forty hours. Yeah, of that was. I always, tr- I always told you to get rid of that shit. I know I had to do it. it was there was this thing job. called a proctor call, right? And I got on like one of them, and Sarah was always trying to obligate me to get on. And I'm like, I'm not sitting on that fucking thing for an hour and listening to people just talk, talk about shit, and talk about meetings all the time. Like we, we didn't, we never got anything done. No, but it was, it was like, <laughs> I just refused to do it. And everyone tried to be like, well, you know, they tried all the shit. They tried all the like, well, what does this mean? I'm like, it means I don't fucking give a shit about being on that call. It's boring to me. Nothing gets done. I'm going to go do something where you guys talk about it. You know, eventually I learned that I could, you know, go on walks or clean up my apartment or things like that and and multitask, something that I also got in trouble for later in the call. But anyway, when I was able to like clear my calendar of all those recurring events, all of a sudden I had this empty space. And one of the things that was part of my healing was, was trying to figure out how do I want to spend my time now that I am now that I have my life back, which is a perfect segue for introducing our next guest, Yanya Lalich, who wrote my favorite cult recovery book called Take Back Your Life. She's an incredible resource and is hugely inspirational to us every step of our way in our healing journey. I'd say she's she's iconic. Yeah, her book is for me was the definitive narrative as to what happened, how it happens, and everything. She's someone who has been through a heavy duty cult indoctrination, woken up, gotten her way out. She's kept on going. She's dedicated her life to helping other people understand how cults operate and how to come back from them. She's a PhD, a researcher, author, and educator specializing in self sealing or closed systems, which means she's an expert in things like cults, human trafficking, coercive influence and all kinds of ideological extremism. She's who the international intelligence community calls on when they need insights on how cults and extremist groups recruit, indoctrinate, influence, and control you. 
She's someone I've called on to help unpack so many things about my experience in Nexium. I actually met her on the set of A&E's Cults and Extreme Beliefs, the first big interview that I did. This was before The Vow. And recently, I had the honor of being the narrator for the audiobook version of her book, Take Back Your Life, Recovering from Cults and Abusive Relationships, which is just one of the many books that, that Yanya's written. But this book in particular explains the seductive draw that leads people into these situations and provides guidelines for assessing what happened and hands-on tools for getting back on track. It's written specifically for victims, their families, and professionals like therapists as a guide through the healing process. We'll share that info in our show notes after this. But for now, here's our conversation with the mighty and wonderful Yanya Lalich. Yanya, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm happy to be here. I'm excited you have started this podcast. So are we. We it was sort of a reluctant choice, but now that we're on the train, it's it seems like um the right thing to do for us. Yeah, I mean, we had some great people approach us and basically said, "Can we bring this stuff into your living room and watch you have conversations?" I mean, <laughs> So what we're doing anyway. We're doing that anyway. So we <laughs> right. figured out, you know, if they were interesting enough, we'll find out, I guess. Yeah. Um, we don't know if other people are going to find this as interesting as we do. Well, but... we can bring more interesting people than us, which isn't hard to find. Yes. Like you, like Yanya. Yanya. Oh, like yeah. when, I, when I met you <laughs> in New York, I was like, I mean, first of all, I'd already read your book, right? Right, right. And... And you had it with you. And I had it with me and I got you to sign it. And right. you were the the guest expert on cults and extreme beliefs for A&E. Right. And... I was so excited to meet you and, you know, our conversations behind the scenes were great. In front of the camera were so helpful. I remember going for dinner with you afterwards and, and we were like, you know, let's start our own thing. I don't know what it's going to be, but it will be something, you know. <laughs> and then we were like, wait, wait, we can't we can't form another group. That would not be good. But just to have an ally in you as a as a, I mean, I'm not technically an educator in the way that you are as an actual professor. Yeah, yeah, you're a professor emerita. What does that mean? What that means is when, when you retire from a professorship, your department meets after you're gone. They don't do this in front of you, but they meet and they decide whether to give you emerita a status or emeritus for the men. And it basically means like honorable, right? So I'm retired honorable professor. <laughs> That's amazing. And you actually have this whole, you know, not only your educational background, but you have your personal experience background, which makes you, a, I think, a, a true expert. And I'm sure you're so sick of telling the story over and over again. And I know it, but I want our listeners to know if you could kind of encapsulate the short version of your cult experience, you know, how you got in. And I've got a couple questions for you. But overall, what we want to talk about is your experience, how you got in, how you got out what the red flags were. And then we have questions for you about what's happening now politically, but also like in regards to the Nexium world and some of the things that you see. And then Nippy's got some sp specific questions about healing and spotting certain things so that our listeners can like really understand the template. Does that sound Sounds good? good. Yeah. And, and How whatever much time do we have? <laughs> I say it's going to take about six hours. Yeah. <laughs> we have to order in food. <laughs> I love the 15 characteristics of a sociopath. I think 
if people could really understand those and identify those, it would weed out a lot of those characteristics uh, in our leaders. And I especially like the part in your book about loaded language. Uh-huh. You, you see a lot of that going on politically as well. And I find if you control the language, you can put handcuffs on any real conversations. Yeah, and absolutely. You can control the really the thoughts and minds of people if if they're going around, you know, whether, you know, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, you know, um, there's a great quotation, George Carlin has political correctness is fascism with manners. <laughs> and I just, I see a lot of the, the parallels when I was reading about um, the loaded language part of your book, I just remember thinking, good God, this is really, you know, you, you control words, you control thoughts, you control behaviors, and you really have soldiers yeah, absolutely. That that was really just enlightening for me to 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 see that broken down. Many of our listeners and who've been following us on Instagram as well saw the Instagram live I did with Yanya. So I'm I'm going to spare you the pain of having to relive some of that cuz you got <laughs> got really personal with me about your life and your mom. But if right. if you can give us just the sort of the the overview of of the cult that you were in and what what drew you in? What did you think you were getting involved with? Oh, so I moved, I, I had been living in Europe and I moved back to San Francisco or to San Francisco in uh, 74. And so I was new in town and sort of discovering feminism. Um, I I was coming out as a lesbian. I was, you know, slowly meeting new people. And uh, this was right at the end of the Vietnam War. So people on the left were kind of looking for what to get involved in next and, um, a lot of, of the major cities in the country had uh, what were called study groups, where small groups of people, friends, whatever, would get together and read various literature and talk and, you know, strategize and whatever. So I met a friend of a friend who invited me. We'd, we'd have coffee, you know, talks over coffee. And one day she invited me to join their study group. And I thought, well, that was cool. You know, I'll meet some new people. And uh, the topic was going to be women in the state. Like, what is the role of women uh, in activism? And so I went to the study group. Um, I mean, there were a lot of whistles already. Like, I was told not to tell anybody. And I was like, well, why can't I tell anybody about the study group? And they're like, well, we don't, you know, we just want to invite certain people. Anyway, I didn't realize there was an organization behind the study group, that it was actually a front for recruiting. So within a, I don't know, probably a month or so, she met with me again at my house and told me they had this organization, uh, this political organization, and, you know, would I be interested in joining? So I'd, I joined. I mean, it's, a lot happens in between there. But anyway, I joined. I really had no clue what I was joining. They told me it was a large international organization, which it wasn't. It had maybe 40 members at that time or maybe 25. Wow. <laughs> and so we were politically left. It was a Marxist organization. We were going to, you know, get rid of racism and sexism and classism and eventually have the revolution. Mm. And I was completely into it. I mean, I was 30 years old then, and I felt like it was time to you know, do something with my life. And these seemed like really serious people. So the red flags of all the rules and regulations and things I had to change about myself, you know, I kind of rationalized because I thought, well, this is what I need to do to be part of this really serious organization. So the group was very strict. I was very quickly moved up into leadership. I was one of the educators within the group teaching 
uh, political study. I was in the inner circle. And it was, you know, we spent most of our time sitting around criticizing each other because we were supposed to get rid of our bourgeois tendencies, right? <laughs> um, and that got very harsh and it got very mean. And um, so, I, and other than that, we had work assignments and people worked, you know, we all worked like 18 hour days, seven days a week, month after month, year after year. I have a question. Yeah. What was the thing that you were criticized for? What was your, what was your issue? Oh, I was criticized for a lot of things. Did you have a, a theme? Well, one of the themes was that I was trying to compete with the leader. Oh. And that was obviously a real no-no. I had this sort of love-hate relationship with the leader, who was a woman and actually had been a sociologist. And uh, she was a drunk and uh, a megalomaniac and very domineering. And she loved me and held me up a lot. As a, as a symbol, because I was from the working class and most people in the group weren't. So mm. I was like this working class hero to her. But on the other side, she would slap me down all the time. So it was, you know, it was one of these situations where when you when the cult leader is about to arrive, you never know if it's going to be the nice, sweet cult leader or the monster. Right. And so you're always kind of on your walking on eggshells. So anyway, I, I was in the group for 10 years. I had two big moments of disillusionment. And uh, the final one had to do with the, the death of my mother, which I, I, I'm not going to go into all that right now. Mm -hmm. But people can refer to my Instagram live if they want that story, because it's right. pretty, it's pretty amazing and beautiful yeah. and sad. And yeah. So after that, I was miserable. And I hated being in the group. And I and I wanted to leave, but I couldn't figure out how to leave. I had no money. I had a broken down car. I had no one outside the group. I didn't know where to go. We were told we'd die in the streets if we left. So for five years, I was miserable. And I would literally pray. Well, I don't pray, but I would wish every day <laughs> that I would be killed in a car accident because it was the only way that I could see to get out. Ironically, we finally had our revolution. And at one point when the leader was out of the country, we called everyone together, told them what was really going on. It took almost a week to convince everybody that we were telling the truth. And we then took a vote and voted unanimously to expel the leader and dissolve the organization. So we all got out at the same time. Wow. And how did the leader react to this revolution? Oh, God. <laughs> so when she came back, what, what we had done was we uh, assigned a team of people to meet with her. And um, we went to the house where she was living. One of the members had rented a house for her. Uh, in San Francisco, and she had another house in Bodega Bay. But anyway, she um, bought her bodyguard, picked her up at the airport and brought her back. And she sat in the living room and, the, you know, there were, I think, six or seven people there trying to tell her the party's over, so to speak. And she didn't get it. She kept, she was like not understanding. And then finally, at one point, she pulled out a cigarette and we always did everything for her, right? We blew her nose. So <laughs> she's holding the cigarette and she's waiting for someone to get up and light her cigarette and nobody gets up. And that's when she got it. That's when she realized they were telling her wow. we're done. So then she screamed and hollered and threw a fit. And, yeah, and so they told her she had a month to get out of the house and that was it. She wow. tried to sue us. Uh, for wrongful termination, which was pretty funny. <laughs> and then, you know, then we all helped each other sort of get our lives back. Wow. And how long after that did you write Take Back Your Life? Let's see, I got out in 86. And the first version of uh, Take Back Your Life, which was called Captive Hearts, Captive Minds, that came out in 
I believe, 94. You had some time to heal yourself and learn about that process. Oh, yeah. I did a lot of reading and writing and therapy. Yeah. What would, what would you say was your primary wound care in terms of your healing process? Uh, for me, it was because I had been in leadership and mm -hmm. I had done, I had really done a lot of really shitty things. I, I was, I modeled myself after the leader. Mm -hmm. And so I was mean and vindictive and bitchy and uh, people hated me justifiably. And so when I got out, I had so much shame and guilt about the, you know, the things I had done, the people I had expelled and criticized and, you know, all, the, just all that. And so that, that was really hard for me. And I, I made a point of trying to go back to everyone who I had personally done something to and apologize, which hopefully helped both of us. But, you know, there, there are still people who won't talk to me. And there are people who actually really dislike me because I've written about the group and talk about the group publicly because they think we shouldn't do that. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad that you do. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's also, we've experienced a little bit of that, not so much directly. There's always going to be people that have a problem with your process. Exactly. One of the things that Sarah and I, when we were discussing doing a podcast is we know firsthand that there's a lot of people that just walked away from Nexium, And it's our hope particularly the people in Mexico, is to do something that they can maybe listen to and understand the importance of going and just, just checking to see, kicking the tires. And I think, you know, reading the first 30 pages of your book, you can get, at least for me, I remember reading the first 30 pages and going, boom, that was mine, moral injury. <laughs> I identified right away and it gave me really good context to diagnose myself and then figure out what next to understand what and how and really what was self-inflicted and, and all that stuff. So that's really where I think you come from. Obviously you wrote a book and where I think today where people get a lot of their content in a, in a podcast, hopefully they can listen to this. They don't even have to credit us, but then go find <laughs> the resources to, to do some work. And what would you say to those people who think they can just walk away from something regardless, regardless of how peripheral they were? Yeah. I think it's like any abusive relationship or traumatic experience. You, you, you can't just walk away from it. it it'll stick with you. And so you have to process it. It's mm -hmm. the only way to really be able to move on and not have all kinds of lingering emotional upheavals and nightmares and emotions that you can't figure out, whatever. And so I think doing this, what we call psychoeducation, uh, mm -hmm. when you get out of a cult or a high control group or that kind of relationship is so important because you need to understand what you know, what were the forces that were working on you that got you to be who you were in that group and got you to do the things you did? Because unless you do that, you don't understand the power of those techniques and, and the power of that entire system on you. And so people tend to be ashamed or embarrassed or they don't want to talk about it and they don't want to look at it, but, but you have to look at it and, and you have right. to kind of take it apart. And just speaking about Mexico, you know, Take Back Your Life was actually published in, in uh, Mexico in Spanish by a Mexican publisher. Wow. What's it? Do you know what it's called? It's called Something Sectas. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a copy and I don't know if it's still available, but, you know, that was actually the first edition that was uh, published in Spanish. So that was mm -hmm. in the mid nineties. Um, and I don't know if it's still available, but we'll look into that, put it in our show notes that people can find on the, um, on the internet and on, on Apple and stuff. But yeah. I, I'll send you the title and the publisher. Please do. 
Yeah. What you said is interesting for me because we were just talking about like, especially a lot of people in Nexium were like, oh, it's a cult. Okay. And then they left and went back to their lives and didn't process. And I think also because of, and this is probably not unique to Nexium, but especially in Nexium because of the whole at cause concept, which was foundational. And I'm sure you've, you've heard about this now that, you know, we cause everything in our life and we make choices and, and we're not, we're not victims that even people that I, you know, helped get out or, or left and they were like, yeah, Keith is bad and all that stuff. Like when I was trying to help them write their victim statement, <laughs> just even the concept of writing a victim statement for a lot of people, they were like, but I chose this. And I'm like, no, but you didn't, you didn't choose this. You would have never chosen this. And so doing a lot of the work that I think needs to be done, people can't even take that first step because they're still not willing to un program themselves or even look at the fact that they were duped because right. that doesn't right. fit in with the narrative. Well, it's pride. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It's hard, it's hard to admit you've been duped. It's pride. Mm. You have yeah. to take a bite out of uh, the humble pie and, and start that journey. And the, the longer you prolong that, the more indoctrinated you are and the more you have to double down and the stuff that people who are still indoctrinated into are doubling down on now is absurd. Yeah. It, and, and, and so for me, it becomes you're watching a train wreck at first I'm kind of reactive to it. And in particular right now, there's something going on where they're outing my wife and they're saying negative things about my wife. But my narrative was false. Um, But (laughs) the absurdity of their claim kind of speaks for itself. So I don't really have a reaction so much to anything except I feel badly for them. Uh It's not like, I mean, everything is just made up now and and you're watching that people keep changing the narrative. They, blur context, they lie by omission, and you're seeing good people. And regardless of what they're saying and doing to us, I know in there, there's good people, and they're in prison. Right. Well, they're, I mean, they're really showing how desperate they are. Right. You know, I might surmise that part of that desperation may be because now they no longer have contact with Keith, um, because that was one of the conditions of the sentence. And and that actually gave me some hope because I thought maybe by not having contact with him, at least some of them might eventually, you know, drift away and come to see what, what they've really been part of. But it is sad. It is sad. It is. And the world waiting for them. You know, all they have to do is pivot. Exactly. You know? Yeah. What, what was that like for you to read? Did you read the whole thing, their, their manifesto? I skimmed it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, you know, they certainly went at you, which mm-hmm. is absurd. And hopefully you're not taking it personally, so to speak. Um, <laughs> no, you know, I, it's, I, it's hard I, to, you know, the same kind of things happened to me because I wrote about my cult because there were a lot of people who wanted to carry on with leftist work and they didn't want it known that they had been in a cult, even though everybody knew. I mean, they wrote about us in every leftist newspaper. <laughs> so I, I understand what that's like. I mean, I, I remember going to my first book reading with Margaret Singer when I wrote the book with her and, and several of them were in the audience, like heckling, you know, so wow. I know it's, wow. it's difficult, but they aren't going to make any traction with that. Nobody's going to believe that. I mean, it, and it doesn't, I mean, who, who are the, who are they even appealing to? Are they drawing anyone in? There's no evidence of that. I don't think so. I mean, I, I, Nippy and I were talking about like, okay, let's just say that my narrative was entirely false and that I made the whole thing up and I'm a liar or whatever. Even if you pull that me out of the equation, there's still this whole body of evidence and all these other people who've spoken up about even by the way, way worse things. Like, 
way right. worse than what happened to me. Right. So I don't know why they think that like discrediting me is going to help their case. I think because you're popular. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they think, hate me. I, I get it. it. I think they think Sarah has gotten something externally that they want. And by the way, you can have it. Yeah, this is <laughs> like, a, this is not. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's you're welcome to it. Um, but I read a, a, a quotation recently. It's like, if you go down the road for revenge, be sure to dig a grave for two. And I think that they're going down a road for revenge, masquerading as altruistic, and it's not right. going to end well. Right. It just won't end well. And that's that's the thing. Ultimately, if you're a human being, you're sensitive to when you watch this, even though you're at the other end of the slings and arrows. So one of the things that we've debated uh, internally is address it. Don't. And I just don't feel like giving it a platform because... Yeah, why? Well, I, I mean, I would agree with that. Why put your energy there? Yeah, it's basically cult behavior. I mean, it's the same thing that Keith did, right? He mm-hmm. he he couched all his perversion and sadism, and you know, his disgusting behavior was couched in ethics and right. you know, uh, good works. You know, so they're they're basically doing the same thing. You know, pretending that they're the altruistic ones and they're the ones who right. really know what happened and. You know, there, as you said, Sarah, there's been, I mean, all you have to do is look at the trial and the charges that came out in the trial. And mm-hmm. you didn't even testify in the trial, did you? No, they didn't no. need me. Exactly. So No, she didn't even go. I went. That's where yeah. I met you. That was yeah, last exactly. time I saw you. <laughs> I, was, I was there just kind of representing. And, and she I was, was home thank, with the baby. Thank, yeah. Thank God, she, you know, she didn't go. Thank you know? God. And also, that was another thing I got from your book, speaking of the baby, is that I read somewhere but you mentioned that like when you give birth where you have a child, you you get, to, it's, it's very healing because you're giving birth to your own inner child as metaphorically. And I think having Ace, having a second baby after we left, I mean, it, it really forced me to, to step out of the trauma because I wanted to create a safe place to, you know, house my child for nine months inside <laughs> me. And I didn't want to be stressed. Right. And I, and I stopped reading the Frank ref- and I stopped engaging in my fight for a little bit, which was, I think, really good for me and really healing and, uh, you know, and helped also overcome a lot of the PTSD because I just needed, I just slept. I just had the proper rest I needed, which I I think is another healing nugget I would share that when people leave these things is that, especially if you've been in a cult where you're a worker bee, like you you and I both were, um, Mm -hmm. and you never have any downtime, learning to have downtime and resting is, is something you have to learn. Right. Maybe he's good at it. He's 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 a good rester, but I'm like, we gotta do stuff. We gotta. Oh yeah, I know. To I do. I mean, when I first got out of the cult in that first year, and I was living in New York, and anyway, I was watching the Oscars for the first time, and you know, I in ten years, I maybe saw two movies, so I didn't even know what movies they were talking about. It was the year that the Mozart movie won, so I I was watching the Oscars, and I just started crying and crying and crying. It's like, oh my god, I'm sitting here doing this like completely normal mundane thing you know and it just felt so wonderful and then i would watch football games you know and i would like make a big bowl of popcorn and watch football and i was like you know i was a sort of a giants fan because i was in new york but i've always been a packers fan because i'm from wisconsin but anyway and i would sit and watch these games and eat my popcorn but i but i would still feel guilty you know i would mm. feel like i really th- th- this is frivolous i really should be doing something else and it takes so much time to work through those old habits i mean that's what they are and the and the things in our head that are still there you know telling us you're not being productive you're not being productive 
I know you've also shared with me that it took you a while to be able to buy clothing and not feel feel too bourgeois. <laughs> oh, I know. And first I bought a stereo set and that was like, oh my God, I thought, I mean, I, I think I hid in my room for a week <clears throat> before I even set it up. And then I would buy clothes and I would put them in the closet with the label still on and not wear them. And, you know, like a year later, I'd go, oh yeah, I remember I bought that dress, you know. Because we we didn't have things like that, we couldn't do that. You know that was bourgeois, and so uh, I still have a little bit of that. You know, it's just, it's interesting. So, what do you do with those? Like, if you could give a tip to people who are listening, like if you have that like thought, wait, is this me or is this like the cult indoctrination still in there? What do you do when you have that recognition? Well, I think it's really important to, um, at least for me, and what's helped with an, a lot of the people I've worked with is to write stuff down. There are some actually some really good workbooks out now, like the complex PTSD workbook and the PTSD workbook and things like that. But also you can just sort of make lists and make charts. And, you know, one of the things I did right way in the beginning, because I was in a political cult and nobody was talking about political cults when I got out of my cult. So I made a list of like what made a religious cult and then what were the things we did that paralleled that? And then I could look at that and go, oh, yeah, we were a cult, you know, and our Jesus was Karl Marx, right? So <laughs> when people have triggers or things that remain, I think really being aware of them so that when that thought happens or that, you know, that little critic inside your head is saying, don't do that, you need to just stop yourself. And sometimes by making lists, like these are the things that trigger me or these are the thoughts that I, I, I have and then look at him and say, well, where did this thought come from? Oh, it came from my training in the cult, you know? So you kind of um, disabuse the idea that these are really your own beliefs right now. We tell our stories. We change the world. A Little Bit Culty is proud to support the hashtag I Got Out Project, which empowers survivors of cultic abuse to share their stories online as a catalyst for education, prevention, and healing. Learn more about the hashtag I Got Out movement and find resources at igotout.org. I just was wondering, like, of the work that you did there, did you have to throw the baby out of the bathwater? Or was there anything that you would take away as, like, part of who you still are, or what you still believe as, like, or a way of operating or a value system or anything? Yeah, I mean, that was a big deal. Um, and I think, you know, I, I wrote this article years ago called Repairing the Soul After a Cult. Because, you know, it, it's our deepest self that gets turned inside out and turned against us and our... And and we give up our own values and our own code of morality to the cult. And we take on the cult leader's sense of values and moral code, if there is one. What I went through, because I was in a left-wing political cult, you know, I, I, I remember thinking, oh, my God, am I now going to become like a right-wing maniac? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> is was all of this really awful? And, and now do I go to the other side? And so I did a lot of reading. I, I studied a lot of the um, communist dissidents, like in Yugoslavia and other countries, 
to um, get kind of a theoretical understanding, I went back and studied Marx and tried to understand better Marx's writings and, and what were his writings before he joined up with the Communist Party and what were his writings afterwards. And so, and I think people need to do the same thing if it's a religion or whatever. You need to unpack it. And I think that's why when people get out of cults, if they're smart, they don't right away rush into something else because they first need to evaluate what is it that I want? What is it that I believe in? So it it, it did take time. It took time for me. I mean, it, it was years before I would even sign a petition because right. that's what we would do all the time is gather up names on petitions, right? Or go to right. a protest. The first protest I went to was the Women's March two years ago. Mm. I mean, you <laughs> just took, took a couple of decades. Yeah, off. exactly. <laughs> no, but you know, it's like you yeah. want to be sure that this is this is what you want and not that someone else is pushing you to it. No, you don't want to be a cult hopper. Exactly. You don't want to be a cult hopper. And we've, we do see plenty of that. Yeah. There is actually one woman, I don't think I've even told you this, Nippy, who left just before the DOS stuff got active in, in, so she wasn't part of the, you know, the vow and the DOS and stuff. And she left and she started getting into yoga and she, even after it all came crashing down, she started doing this yoga in LA and was about to make a lifetime commitment to this guru. Are you also tired of one-size-fits-all weight loss plans? Meet Noom, the personalized solution that meets you where you are. Noom is able to understand your unique needs, from dietary restrictions to medical concerns. Unlike restrictive programs, Noom embraces your lifestyle and choices. Discover a sustainable approach to weight loss, tailored just for you. Honestly, Noom felt like it was made for me. It's not just about what I eat. It's about understanding why. With Noom, I've learned so much about myself and built healthier habits that stick. It's all about progress, not perfection. Say goodbye to restrictive diets and experience the Noom app for yourself with personalized lessons and expert coaching. Noom's psychology and biology-based approach has helped over 5.2 million people achieve their goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Spring has sprungeth. And you know what else is springing up? Hair. All across the land, people who have added Nutrafol to their hair health regimen are waking up to healthier, thicker manes. And that's a beautiful thing, because hair thinning is complicated. And the problem is, it's actually much bigger than your hair alone. Like your skin, hair is a reflection of your health. And internal factors can impact the way your hair looks, feels, and grows. Nutrafol's whole body approach multi-targets underlying root causes like stress, hormone fluctuations, and nutrient gaps for visibly thicker, stronger hair. And that's why we're thrilled to be on Team Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol's women's hair growth supplement for six months. 86. I like those numbers. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code CULTI. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code CULTI. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code CULTI. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. As you can probably imagine, being in a cult for over a decade took a toll on some of my relationships with my closest friends and family. And something that has helped me mend those relationships has been working on my most complicated relationship of all time, the one I'm having with me. Therapy has been a great place to work through all that tricky stuff and can help you in your relationships too. Whether it's with your friends, your coworkers, your significant other, or anyone. Things like coping skills, boundaries, communication. You can practice any of that in therapy and see big differences. I swear by therapy. Oh boy, do I swear by it. Yep, I love this journey for me. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online and you can schedule around what works for you. And all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. Plus, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. No brainer. This is the time of year when people talk about finding their soulmates, and you can always become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com slash culty today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash culty. And everyone around her was like, you're doing it again. And she's like, no, but it's different. And then she's like, wait a second, maybe it's not. (laughs) I'll share my process, Jan, and maybe this is somewhat what you're talking about. When I got out, and I'd say Sarah and I's indoctrination was, we still had our lives outside of it, mm-hmm. right? And we still had things that we were pursuing outside of it. So our indoctrination wasn't entirely in, and there were still things that we just didn't agree with. Because we never moved there. And I wouldn't yeah. do it. Yeah. There were things I just wouldn't do. That was still me. And, and I would actually say, fuck that. I'm not doing it. <laughs> N- Nippy, would say, Nippy would say, what are you going to do? Cut my pay? Yeah. <laughs> no, that, was my, that, was, that was my thing. I, someone he would say something. He wasn't like, making money. Cut my pay. <laughs> what if I, you need me. I don't need you. And like I still had that kind of philosophy. And I decided when it came to my family, my family was way more important than anything going on there. And I always said, when, if this thing were to go heads up or this thing were to end, there's five to 10 people that I would miss. Uh-huh. And most of the Mexicans, I just, the Mexicans <laughs> just brought, I said in the last podcast, they just brought great energy to everything they did and they made it fun. And, and a lot I of missed, great people from that Mexico. aspect of it and the people. All that said, you know, when I look at, I, I didn't consider myself political before the last election. Um, I wasn't really interested in politics per se. I mean, I, I read a statistic where most people spend four minutes a week listening to politicians um, and, and are aware of it. Mm-hmm. But obviously that was something that was thrust uh, in everyone's psychology, partly just because of the personality that was in charge. And, and I, went, I went down one side of it, down the other side of it, feeling you know outraged at Trump and then seeing how one side handled the other side. Just kind of the whole thing to me just felt really immature on both sides. And when I read the loaded language aspect of your book, it just felt like both sides were trying. And I say sides, you know, I don't, I think that's part of the problem is when you say sides, but both sides were really had loaded language. And, you know, at first blush, you think it's all Trump, but then you were were in something that was considered far left. I'm sure you can identify a lot of the patterns going on in the media, like it's it's very hard to not be indoctrinated into something very, very quickly in today's media. And I'd love for you to comment on what you see, regardless of where you are politically, what you see going on with that dynamic now. I think, you know, as, as we know, language is really powerful. And I think every, I don't know, what do we want to call them? Special interest group has mm-hmm. their way of communicating and, and kind of create their own language and handshakes and whatnot. And I think that when those things go mainstream or get a television channel or, you know, all kinds of internet, whatever communities, um, the language can be very 
uh, seductive and very persuasive. And certainly there's extremes on the left. In my opinion, the extremes on the right, at least in our country, are far more dangerous because they're armed and they're violent, whereas right. the left hasn't really ever been very good at that. <laughs> That's why we never get anywhere. Uh, no, I don't want to say that. But <laughs> Well, I mean, I've, I, I, I've heard it put, um, the, the right comes in, they kick your door open, and, they, and they, you know exactly what they look like, and, and, and the left is a little bit more co- covert. So it's, it's overt aggression versus covert aggression, if that in the extremes of both sides, in, you mean? In, in extremities, sorry, not... Yeah, in the extremes, yeah. I, I, I suppose that's true. Although, you know, certainly in some cases, there has been violence on the left. I mean, you know, if, if, yeah, if we well, look nationally at, at uh, Chairman Mao in China, um, you know, it was certainly an example of that. And the, the sort of anarchists who muck up a lot of the very good demonstrations about social justice get taken over by these guys all in black who are, you know, mucking everything up and breaking the windows and, and then the good guys get blamed. But anyway, yeah, so lang- loading the language, which actually comes from Robert Lifton. I'm sure maybe you know that or maybe yeah, you don't. Yes. Yes. Uh, but I don't know if all your listeners will, but Robert Lifton's book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, which was very helpful to me because it was a study of the thought reform program in communist China, which was very much what I went through. Uh, So it was really the first thing I found that spoke to me. But he has these eight principles of a totalistic group and loading the language is one of them. And all all eight of them are spot on. And that's another thing that I often had people do when I worked with people was take those eight eight characteristics of Lifton's and just – list out how did your cult do each one of those things those kinds of diagrams i think really help people again understand the enormity of um of what they were subjected to do you think schools should have some sort of curriculum on this i absolutely do i mean i i've actually one of the things sarah and i were thinking about i've talked about that we need a, a national education program and of course that sounds like socialism so everybody freaks out when i say it but change Change the language. Right. Sticking with the theme, right? <laughs> I think that we, especially in America, I mean, you guys are in Canada, so you're a little better off. But, you know, we've really seen the dumbing down of America. That's how I see it uh, over the last decades. And, you know, certainly with the the crazy talk radio and the all night talk radio and some of this stuff on TV and then all the stuff on the Internet, I think has people have lost their ability to really be discerning about what they're hearing and what and what they're looking at. And I and I saw this even as a college professor. I mean, I was on a scholarship committee uh for uh, low-income kids to give scholarships to low-income kids. And their resumes, these high school seniors, their resumes were so interesting because they were all told to focus on their service work, right? Like, oh, they worked at a they went to a nursing home and read to the old people or they scraped up doo-doo at the zoo or whatever, you know, it's like if everything in high school they're being pushed at was about service, service, service. Mm. I think service is great, but what happened to critical thinking, <laughs> right? And so um, there needs to be a re-emphasis on that. Um, and I think if we can do that through the educational system and certainly start to really teach about this whole idea of unethical persuasion and and, and healthy and unhealthy groups. That's actually a great segue to one of my questions, which was in learning 
to understand what happened to me, I've, I've obviously read your book and, and others. And there's a lot of words that are similar or terms that are similar, like, you know, brainwashing, indoctrination, mind control, different terms that kind of seem to undo influence mean similar things, but they're being batted around. And as the vernacular becomes more mainstream, like gaslighting was not a term mm -hmm. that I was even familiar right. with when I joined Nexium. What, what is the, the main way that you like to describe what can happen to your brain in a cult? And wh what is that process? Well, the way I see it is that a cult will have a belief system that, you know, promises you everything that gives you a framework for understanding the past, the present, and the future, and offers you some kind of idealized goal, right? Whatever that might be. It could be religious, political, self-improvement, whatever, right? Within that belief system, there's a requirement that you have to go through a personal transformation in order to be on that path, to be accepted. That personal transformation is where the, the indoctrination program takes root. So I, I do call it an indoctrination program, but it's also what it is in sociological terms is that it's a, it's a re-socialization. You are being re-socialized to be a good cult member. And we're socialized all throughout our life, right? As kids, we're socialized when we first go to school. We learn how to make friends and how to deal with bullies. And then we get a job and we're socialized into how are we supposed to behave at that job, right? So what happens is this intense re-socialization. Part of it is attacking you, attacking yourself so that you doubt yourself and you think only this leader or the people who are training you have the answers. And as they tear apart you, they're building, they're kind of building and reinforcing this, this new you until you get to the point where in extreme cases, you, you kind of don't even remember who you originally were. And it's why mm -hmm. people say, oh, I saw my son or my daughter or my whoever, and they just seemed like a completely different person, right? Because in many aspects, you are. You're single-minded. You only talk about certain things. You're defensive. You're whatever, right? So that resocialization obviously changes your patterns of thought and changes your behaviors. So we can call it brainwashing. I originally had no problem with that. But what's happened over time is that the word has gotten so misused and misunderstood. And there are cult apologists who try to keep us from using that word. So I kind of stay away from it just to not get lost in that muck because I'd rather be able sure. to do what I do. And mm -hmm. so I see that through the indoctrination, you get to this point where you're enclosed in this kind of altered reality and you enter what I call bounded choice, this place where your choices are constrained and confined by the desires of the group and the leader. Right. So yes, there's brainwashing. I was one of the main brainwashers in the group I was in. I, I actually, <laughs> one of my assignments at one point was to create a brainwashing program, literally. Um, and we wow. called it, we called it party school and the top members had to attend it. And and we told them that they were willingly being brainwashed. And we did. We willingly brainwashed ourselves because we wanted to be those good communists, right? So other terms like mind control, I, I don't like at all because I feel like it's too mechanical. It has a clinical kind of... Well, it had, to me, it has more of a mystical. It's like, you know, you're some zombie and some person back there is telling you what to do. That's not really how it works. You're telling you what to do because you've mm -hmm. internalized all the beliefs and the rules and the requirements of the system. You're, mm -hmm. you're checking yourself, right? You're, you're stopping yourself from doing things. 
you're keeping yourself in the group because that's what you've been re-socialized to do. Like gaslighting yourself. Yeah, in a sense, yeah. I'm not saying that, yes, you're doing this, that nobody duped you. Yeah, you were duped in the sense that this this isn't what you thought you were getting into. You know, Mm -hmm. if somebody told me, oh, come join this group and you're going to be a heartless, cold bitch. I mean, I I wouldn't have signed (laughs) up for that. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. So much of the of every conversation I have with this work is like, okay, let's say one of the loyal we call them the loyalists, Mm -hmm. the true the true believers. Let's say they're listening. And I know their their belief system and their on their outlook on us because I used to be them. Right. You know, I used to have that belief system. And I know that everything that we do is proof that the world is out to get them because, of course, there's no victims except for for them. (laughs) There's no victims in the world except for Keith, who's a victim now to the judicial system. Right. And me, Mark, Bonnie and Catherine and the rest of us. But anyway, um, I'm always seeing things through the lens of like how to reach them. And I know that if they were to hear that, they would say, as I would have said, I'm not a new me. I'm a better me. I'm a better me. I'm more this, this and this. And I'm not brainwashed because I'm choosing this and I'm at cause and look how happy and successful I am. And you just don't get it. So like, how do you ever get through to that self-sealed system to use your words or uh, closed loop logic is another term I've heard. Like, how do you get through to that? Or is it just that they have to have their own wake up moment themselves? Ultimately, they have to have their own wake up moment. I think that's how most people leave groups. I do think that everybody has doubts and moments Mm -hmm. of like, I'm not so sure. And, you know, the way I've described it is that we have this little shelf in the back of our head and put all the doubts there because we can't express them, obviously. And then at some point, you know, one more thing happens and that shelf breaks and then the doubts come spilling out. Then you have to kind of figure out, okay, I see something is wrong here. How do I leave? How do I get myself out? I love that metaphor. So I think what those of us who have people on the inside of whatever group or rabbit hole, what I always say is you need to plant seeds on that shelf that'll Mm -hmm. grow, that'll eventually cause the shelf to be too heavy and break so that it's, right. it's, it's, you can't directly confront, but you have to sort of plant ideas that that'll kind of moil around in their head and get them to see, start, hopefully start to see things in a different way. And you may sure. never know when that's going to work or how that's going to work. I, I guess you should also never give up hope. I, you know what? I don't. And we actually, Nippy and I have debates about who's going to leave or not leave. And, and we think that some people may never, but I, I always hold out hope that I, and I will welcome back any of them, right. even ones that have been total assholes to me and shit talked me to no end. I get it. They, you know, I will, I will hug them as long as there's no coronavirus. I will hug them. I will accept their apology. Right. We can just water under the bridge, you know, and I feel that way pretty much towards towards everybody. But I, I think, Except you know, Keith. I would, you know, yeah, no, he can rot in prison. <laughs> um, absolutely. But I think that like, I can't plant those seeds because they still hate me. And that's, that's fine. And that's fair. But not many people know this, but almost everyone that's still loyal, respective family members have reached out to us and want to help their children. And, you know, we've tried to help them plant the seeds. Right. And that's sort of the only thing that we can do because anything coming from us is seen as, right. You they know. dig their heels in even more. Yeah, right. Exactly. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell you an, a story of a one of the few interventions I ever did. This was years ago, but I, I was working with a family whose daughter had joined a political cult. She had been a student at Berkeley 
and dropped out of school to be in this group. And they had another daughter who committed suicide. And they were from Hawaii, and they were going to have the funeral in Hawaii. And the cult had agreed that the the girl could go attend the funeral. So they said to us, the, the intervention team, they wanted us to do the intervention then. And we said, no, 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 this is like a bad time. No, 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 just, you know. And they said, this is the only way we can make sense of our other daughter's death is to use this opportunity to meet with our other daughter. So we all went to Hawaii. The funeral happened the day, day or two later. She came over to her aunt's house and we were there. They introduced us. We had, I would say, maximum a half an hour with her of, you know, asking her some questions, saying a few things, trying to get her to talk a little bit. And after a half an hour, she jumped up, ran out of the house, ran down the hill to a phone booth and called the police. First, she called her cult and they bought her a ticket. She called the police. She stayed in the phone booth. She told the police she was being held against her will, which, of course, she wasn't. And they took her to the airport and she flew back to California. So, you know, we felt terrible, of course. Six months later, she left the group because some of the few things we said to her stayed with her. And when she got back to the group, she started to see things differently. And finally, one day she said, I'm out of here. And she left. And so, you know, you, you never know what what's going to make a difference. But one thing I want to mention is that my colleague Colleen Russell and I are starting support groups for families, families and friends who have someone in a cult. Uh, So if you know anyone who'd be interested in that. We we have like eight, families off the top of my head. Yeah. And <laughs> we're, we're going to we're gonna do them on Zoom like, like we do the support group for former members. Mm. Um, it'll be every other week. Um, I think right now we're thinking Friday afternoons because uh, we're thinking a lot of people might not be working anyway because of the pandemic. So we're going to start those next month. Speaking of true believers, uh, I, I know that somebody reached out to you and asked you to evaluate, you know, evaluate Keith and that it was unfair the way he was being evaluated without having ever met him or had any discourse with him. And I'm just wondering if you could share why you don't think you need to do that to assess him. Well, I mean, would I need to assess Jeffrey Dahmer to see if he really did eat people after he murdered them? I mean, there's so much evidence of mm-hmm. who Keith was. Not only all of the information that I've gained from all of the former Nexium people that I've talked to, but even if some people are going to say, well, that's just a false narrative that's made up, <laughs> so much very concrete evidence came out in the trial of Keith saying things in his own words, uh, videos, photographs, trainings, uh, him leading trainings. This wasn't other people saying it about him. It was him saying these things. And looking back at his history of running scams, um, that I think it wouldn't really be of any benefit to my understanding of him to to read whatever documents that person offered me or uh, a conversation with with him, mm-hmm. which I can't even imagine how that would happen. So, I mean, yes, there are there are times when I I would love to interview some cult leader or another, but not because. At least in this case, I think I'm wrong about my impressions of mm-hmm. Keith Raniere. 
Right. So their belief on you is that you can't see what a noble, kind, humanitarian, ethical man he is. And it's just your lack of true depth and willingness to see the truth about him. But really what it is, I think, is that you see an underlying, you have an underlying assumption, which is that he's not a good person, that he is a sociopathic, narcissistic, sex addicted, megalomaniac. They see sadist, him. You forgot sadist. Oh, sadist. Yes, sadist. <laughs> yes, all those things. And he, they see him as good intentioned, doing unconventional things to try to help people, specifically in this case with DOS women, to find their true strength and to uphold each other and be more accountable, blah, 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 all that word salad bullshit. But the assumption underneath it is that they still think he's good. But how, you know, how can he be good when he's starving women? People are malnourished. I mean, the doctor at the, the chiropractor at the trial said, you know, he thought these women were, were malnourished. I mean, this isn't just some made up thing. I mean, he's, he's starving people. He's planning to build a, a kind of torture chamber in the basement of one of the houses. I mean, he's, and he's a total hypocrite. Yeah, he's a hypocrite and he's cruel and he's, you know, I mean, how how is that a divine being? No, absolutely. I mean, you don't have to you don't well, have to convince I, I, me of that. <laughs> I think just having people read the 15 characteristics of a sociopath, if that doesn't change their mind about him, yeah. then they don't it, there's a great, I think it was Edward Snowden said it in a podcast. You have three quotes this podcast. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, You're I'm, busting I'm out busting the quotes. Out. Do it. Well, you can't wake people up that are pretending to be asleep. Yeah. And that actually leads me to <clears throat> possibly my final question and something I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask of you to participate in, which is that we have a segment in our show called That Really Chaps My Ass. Um, <laughs> that must and, be a Canadian expression. <laughs> oh, you don't have that? Chaps my ass? I, Nippy says Yanya, it all the time. I'm American. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, I'm not Canadian. Yeah. 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 So, what chaps my ass is like something that really pisses you off, and specifically about your cult. So, I'm asking this to cult survivors like yourself. So, I'll give you an example, and then you can think of something. So, every now and then, Nippy and I turn to each other and we go, you know what really chaps my ass? And in this case, speaking of, of, of uh, Keith being a hypocrite, there was so much dogma about keeping your word and being on time. In fact, if we were not on time, especially in, in the SOP trainings, you probably know this. If we, if somebody was 10 minutes late, we stood for 10 minutes after that person arrived in silence so that person could feel the weight of their lateness and how that affected the whole group and shit like that, right? Then at every V week at night, there'd be like some sort of event or performance at around seven or 7.30 or even later sometimes but it'd be a set time. I wouldn't go. And we always waited for at least an hour for Keith. He would always be the last person to come strolling in and sit down. And we always thought that he was doing important stuff. And we found out later he was fucking women. <laughs> he was late because he was having threesomes and like whatever kind of like, you know, sex in itself isn't a problem. But his. Well, especially his, since his... he can't get it up, but. Yeah. Well, no wonder he was late. It took a while. <laughs> so that really chaps my fucking ass that we waited for so long for him and he was just going out and, you know, being being douchey. So anyway, do you have a that really chaps your ass? Maybe something you haven't shared about something that happened in your cult that you're like, oh, can't believe that happened. Well, I, I, I mean, one of the things I can think of that that used to really I don't know if it was piss me off but freak me out was we'd those of us in the inner circle would have these sessions with our leader usually at her house in Bodega Bay like a bunch of us would have to go up there for weekends or holidays or whatever 
and she would drink. She drank hard alcohol and we would have to drink along with her. And, um, you know, most of us are sitting on the floor and she's ranting and talking about her childhood and this nonsense. And, and then she would want us to sing the house of the rising sun because that was her favorite song. And each of us had to then make up a verse to go to, you know, go with the song. So if, and if it got to your turn and, and you couldn't think of a verse or she didn't like the verse you made up, then she would like slap you across the face. <gasps> and wow. So that, I don't know if that chapped my ass, but it was one of the reasons I, I, I used to then make up excuses to not go to those anymore. I would pretend I was sick because I was like, I, I can't take part in that bullshit anymore. And on top of it, one time her dog bit me in the ass and that really chapped my ass. <laughs> that, and that I am is... a pure dog lover and no dog has ever bitten me except her Rottweiler guard dog. So that was another beef. <laughs> I think those are two really good qualify? examples. <laughs> yes. Yes. Quite literally. Quite literally. Yes. Absolutely. That's a, a great note to end on. But there was one person who asked if you could answer this briefly, if there's any steps that you can recommend for people to become an expert or a deprogrammer, because I think also the world needs it right now. There's not enough. So is there like a path or a, a program that people can take or anything like that? Uh, and 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 this is this is a cult survivor asking this question. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I am I'm I feel very strongly people should not become activists too soon. Uh, I think they need to. <laughs> yes, Sarah. Uh, they need to deal <laughs> with their uh, healing and their self-care first, which which I think you did that year with the baby. So I forgive you. Uh, Thank you. But in general, I think becoming an activist too soon isn't isn't terrific and can set you back. But then, I, you know, I think uh, sharing your story, uh, talking about the things that, you know, that bothered you when you were in your group and maybe helped you decide to leave one day. I think sharing stories is really important. Um, I think depending on what cult you were in, most Many cults have started websites of um, information about that group and survivor networks. Uh, so doing things like that. And, and then, you know, perhaps working with families who have someone in the same cult you were in, I think, is where you can be the most helpful. Um, okay. So I think it's just, you know, putting yourself out there, but also make sure you do your homework and 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 understand the whole phenomena so that you don't mm -hmm. muck up somewhere along the road. And is, and, and is there a way to actually become an official deprogrammer or exit counselor? Uh, like no, there... no, no. I mean, first okay. of all, deprogramming is. No, that's, that's not a term people use. It's anymore, an archaic right? word. Yeah. And, and, the, and, and even the exit, most of the exit counselors today have become more like uh, family mediation folks. Um, I think interventions are happening less and less, and it's really about trying to help the family or friends find ways to communicate and stay in touch with the person and, and be that safe haven that they can come to if they decide to leave. Well, it seems like that's sort of been part of our journey. And you're right. I did become a fighter before I'd healed, um, although it was kind of healing for me to be the fighter, but I did have that recognition. I don't know if I've told you when I finished your book um, that I... I realized that because I've been fighting, even when I was building Nexium, I was, you know, fighting the world. And then now I was fighting the cult. And so now that the fight is over, it's like, I don't really, now I get to figure out who I am. Mm -hmm. And that was really emotional to get to the end of your book and realize that I still have work to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, 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 
I I believe it takes about five years uh, to mm-hmm. uh, after you get out of a cult. Again, depending on how long you were in and at what level and all of that. But I think right. five years is when is kind of an average of when you finally know who you are. Mm. I look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote in the book when I met you, which was by the way on um, April eleventh, two thousand eighteen, wow. and you said. Dear, brave, wonderful, lovely Sarah. That's very sweet. Thank you. Despite your savior complex, you're doing well and will only do better in taking back your life. Savior complex. Do you think that's like, I feel like in my own healing journey, that's what drove me in it and is also what drove me outside of it. Where do you think that comes from? And what, what's the best way to put that to bed, put that to rest? Well, I think it comes from, at least for most of us, the groups that we were in were about having the answer, right? We had mm-hmm. the answer and we were going to change the world. Uh, you know, right. maybe not always that grandiose, but it's about being right, having the right ideas and the right behaviors, right? So when we get out, I think there's still that tendency to want to be right, but now it's in the opposite way and to be and to have the right behaviors, which now means, you know, trying to get everybody else out of that group or help other people who are in groups. Um, because, you know, what gets people into cults is idealism. You know, it's not weakness. It's not psychological problems. It's, it's idealism. That idealism was betrayed and it was used against you. So now you're out. That little idealistic component is still there. Only now you want to kind of reverse it back and, and you have to wait. You have to, you have to deal with self-care first. Okay. And, and that's a really good advice. What's the number one self-care thing that people should do when they leave cults, do you think? Sleep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I also thought that buying flowers for your wife was a really big part of self-care. Oh, no, wait. Sorry. That's just kidding. kidding. Or Air Force One gold. Yes. At the beginning of the show, we talked about Nippy bought me the best present ever, which was gold running shoes, which are so bourgeois. They're so bourgeois. Yeah, no, you'd freak freak out if you saw these shoes. They're not real gold. They're gold colored. Yeah, they're not gold plated. They're gold plated. (laughs) No, they're Come on. Knock it off. Okay, well, just just to wrap up, um, is there anything else that you want people to know, like in terms of your desire to to spread truth about these issues, like that you feel like is an important nugget to take away? No, I just think in general, people need to slow down if they're thinking about joining something and do their research and be good consumers. And uh, there's a lot of information out there. Uh, the internet's being used to recruit people, but there's also good information there that that can be used to help educate you so that mm-hmm. somebody doesn't jump into the the wrong rabbit hole. Okay. And if they do and they and they need help getting out, they can read your book. They can read right? my book. They can go Take to my website, cultresearch.org. And they can reach out to you if they want to uh, get some support with their family or join one of your groups. Yes, absolutely. What are the other things that that uh, you want people to know about what you're doing right now, where to find you? Well, they can find me through my website. There's a way to email me. They should also know that I, I have the book about children who grew up in cults, which is um, actually the big population coming out of groups right now. So that wow. book is called Escaping Utopia. And okay, I, I should probably read that. I interviewed 65 people who grew up in a cult um, because people who grew up in a cult, when they come out, they have slightly different issues. So that's also another resource. And what else am I doing? I'm, uh, you know, I wrote my memoir and I'm trying to get it published. And I can't wait to read that. I walk my dog and um, I can't wait for the pandemic to be over because 
I'm uh, anxious to travel again, and maybe I'll even come to Vancouver. Well, we would love to host you and spend more time with you because we both just think the world of you. And thank you. So grateful you've provided a resource for. I'm going to cry. Don't cry. (laughs) You're going to cry. Provided a resource for our healing. Like it's just been really profound for us. So thank you for taking the time to share your wisdom and and your humor and your Yanya (laughs) essence. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Sarah and Nippy. Thank you, Yanya. Yeah. You're the best. Thank you. Until next time. Wow. She's great. That Isn't was great, she amazing? Sarah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I know. I know. What would you like? Well, I like the, the term re-socialization because I think that people can wrap their head around that better than mind control or brainwashing because it's just so obscure and something out of a sci-fi movie, which also does happen. <laughs> but I think that my biggest takeaway from talking to Yanya and also from narrating her her book was that, you know, you really have to take time to heal after getting out of something like this. And most people don't. They think just waking up and realizing that they were conned or that that they were in a a cult or a culty group is enough. It's not. You have to understand the systems of influence and what happened to you and your brain and your life and your value system and everything. Otherwise, you will do it again and you will will not heal. Or you're just not making really sound decisions. No. Your your framework's been, been toyed with. And I think also the book's really good at breaking down the different types of cults because people may have a certain stigma around things like, you know, religious cults. And, you know, the whole point of this podcast is looking at things from like what's a little bit culty to a lot culty. And some of these organizations and groups, whether it be um, a religious cult, a family cult, a spiritual cult, a new age cult, I also recognized, you know, obviously our, ours fall under what's called a large group awareness training, personal development programs. But when when Keith created DOS, he was bringing into uh, and and using methods like in terms of branding from a cult, like satanic right. cults. And that freaked me out because, I mean, I knew it, he'd gotten dark, but I hadn't made that correlation until I read the book. Right. So just understanding, you know, what methods were done to your mind and to your value system and everything and where did it come from? Just getting that education is a huge part of education. The that's the that's the thing I was going to go in on. I think this is all valuable education, regardless of whatever word you want to use, socialized, indoctrinated, or anything like that. There needs to be some sort of awareness just into how all these things work. Whether it be you know when you go to school, you're being indoctrinated. When you go to church, you're being indoctrinated. When you but that, that's a healthy authority. Well, I know what what yeah. I think I like about that is there ought to be something in our schools that explains it, which is. You know, exciting. I think her book, you know, for me, it was the first thing I literally read. I'd watched a couple of their videos, but when I read hers, it read quickly. And even just the first 30 to 40 pages were, regardless of whether or not you've been in something like this is valuable just in terms of self-awareness. You know, so. she also wrote the script to a, um, a TED talk that's online and we'll share that video in our, in our notes. It's called, Why Do People Join Cults? And it's just a couple minutes, breaks it down, super clear. And that is also a great resource for something that might just be full cult or something that's a little bit culty. So wrapping up, thanks everyone for listening. We'll post more information on Yanya's work and works in our show notes. And her book is Take Back Your Life. It's available everywhere you can get your books. And also the audio version coming in the next couple of months. Thanks guys for listening. I hope you you found this as interesting as we did. Till next time.
We're going to be back soon with more episodes of A Little Bit Culty with more experts and survivors and sometimes experts who are survivors and some familiar faces from The Vow. If you got suggestions or questions on upcoming topics, find us on Instagram at a little bit culty. And for more background on what got me to this point, my memoir, Scarred, the true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life, is available on Amazon, Audible, and wherever books are sold. If you'd like to help us spread the word about a little bit culty podcast, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Like literally take their phone out and, and press subscribe. Five stars. Five That's stars. five of them. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app. A Little Bit Culty is executive produced by me, your co-host, Sarah Edmondson, and Anthony Nippy Ames. Associate producer is Jess Tardy. Produced, edited, mixed, and mastered by Citizens of Sound. Our amazing theme song, Cultivated, is by John Bryant and co-written by Nigel Asselin. Additional original music is composed by Will Rutherford. We'll be back with more episodes. Until then, don't don't join join a a cult. cult. I'm Sarah Edmondson, and thanks for listening to A Little Bit Culty.